Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I'm joined by Amanda Lucier, who is a photojournalist based out of Portland, Oregon. She's also a philosopher of sorts. She's a hunter and also very interestingly, she's the daughter of a really fascinating and influential experimental uh, musician. And we'll talk more about Amanda's father in this podcast. I met Amanda, or I guess started communicating with Amanda a couple years ago. There had been some talk about maybe doing uh, a photo project that has yet to materialize. But uh, man, it, it ended up being a really serendipitous meeting because I was in Oregon last year. I made a point to stop in Portland and just say hello to Amanda and her partner, Nick. And man, they've got a fantastic family, like a family that's so cool and just well-balanced and nice to be around that, uh, that, you know, hour and a half, two hour interaction I had with them last year really stuck with me and, uh, talked a little bit back and forth with Amanda and, I've just been so excited to know her and meet her and just kind of be brought into her fold. So I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, I think you will as well. So please enjoy this conversation with Amanda Lucier. All right. So I am in the midst of my turkey tour. And I've made a stop on my way to Eastern Oregon, uh, and I'm here in Portland uh, with... Okay, so this is how we're going to start. I actually am not sure, Amanda, how to pronounce your last name. Is it like Is it like a hard R? Is it like I'm Francophile? I'm just going to wait and see how you're going to try it. No, it's French-Canadian, so it's Lucier. Okay, so that's how I've been pronouncing it in my head, but... Uh, there's a guy in Montana whose last name is similar, but he pronounces it with like the E-R on it. Yeah. Okay. So Amanda Lucier, uh, photojournalist, which we'll get to that because that, uh, I think last year when you told me that, that was my, it, it was an adjustment for me in, in my understanding of someone who's a pro- professional photographer because all of my dealings have been with kind of like a more commercial sense. But uh, anyway, this is an awkward introduction. So I think Amanda, we first made contact a year or two ago, uh, and you were talking about maybe uh, coming down to Black Duck and uh, doing some sort of project, which at some point may happen. But last time I was in Oregon, you were nice enough to let me stop by and meet you and your family. And it was uh, it was like a very brief interaction but incredibly significant to me uh, like I, I really felt like it was it was very 
super thought provoking and kind of eye opening towards me. And uh, it was it's, it's weird to have a brief interaction, but like you kind of keep and carry it. So when I was coming back through here, I wanted to reach out and talk to you. And thank you so much for letting me do so. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to we're going to wander. This will be a little bit of a ramble. But so you're out here. You're like as far west as you can go, essentially. But you're from the East Coast, right? Yeah, I grew up in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, yeah, that, you might be the first. What do you call a person from Connecticut? Oh my gosh, truly, I think we're called nutmeggers, but I can't imagine that I've ever used that in actual conversation with anyone. <laughs> I think also sometimes I'll just, I can explain things by saying like, but you know, I'm from Connecticut and people just seem to be like, oh yeah, there seems to be like a certain way of being a little bit, maybe like slightly uptight with a slightly East Coast attitude. I mean, I grew up there my whole life, but every summer if I wasn't in girls camp um I was out in Colorado which is where my mom's from okay and so we're going to talk about fathers for a second because it's just a perfect segue uh so my dad the the uh formerly alive Hiram Wilkins uh he's Connecticut held like a really special place in his life story because he lived out there after Vietnam, he lived out there and he was a shoe salesman, uh, for Brown shoe company, like old heads might remember like floor shine shoes. But I think that's when, honestly, I think that might've been when my father was happiest and he would always talk about driving around Connecticut and, uh, looking at the leaves change. And then, you know, he came back to St. Louis and he was in St. Louis like for the rest of his life. But I think that was, I think that was the magical place for him. Right. Uh, and so I reference him because I've gathered just through like social media and a few conversations we had that your father is very influential and important in your life. Uh, and a person of, of some renown in his own right. So, uh, you mind telling me about your dad a little bit? I love that you ask that. Um, I you and I certainly haven't talked, I guess, probably since last summer when you when mm -hmm. you rode through. Um, I killed my first buck this fall, and then two weeks later was there when my dad died. So it was a really intense hunting season <laughs> for me last year, and I've been reflecting on it so much just because... Um, let me set the stage a little bit. My dad's name is Alvin Lucier. He's an experimental composer. So he died at 90. So you can imagine what a life that was. I mean, just like born in 1931 in Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, and he sort of lived his life as a little bit of like a, not like a terribly academic high schooler, but his mom, he was the youngest of four. His mom sort of saw that he was going in the wrong direction and she saved up money. And she asked the priest, like, what am I going to do with Alvin? He's like, you need to send him to prep school for a year and see if you can turn his life around. So she, like, took the money literally out from under the bed, paid for him to go to prep school for a year, and it completely changed his life. So he ended up going to Yale, studying music, getting a Fulbright, and then becoming, quite, quite honestly, a, a deeply influential figure in the world of experimental music. Now, most people... I have no idea what experimental music is, and that's completely that's completely reasonable. His approach to music was um, it has it in in the title, right? Experimental. So 
what is the actual behavior of sound in the world? And like, if we are attuned to listening to it in a particular way, that's just deeply thoughtful, sort of what do we learn about the spaces around us through the way sound behaves in those spaces? So um, one of his most famous pieces is called I'm Sitting in a Room, and he records kind of a, a phrase into the room and then he records it again and then he records the recording of the recording and then the recording of the recording of the recording until the way that the sound waves move within the room they reinforce themselves and by the end of this recording what you have is sort of um, a sonic map of the space that was his first really big influential piece um, and he sold it to the museum of modern art um, about 10 years ago so my dad is um the other thing I want to say about my dad also, from I guess a little bit of a professional perspective, is that he wasn't terribly successful through most of his life in terms of getting accolades for the work that he was doing. But he had these specific questions and this like never-ending curiosity about what really drove him, and he just followed it without stopping. And then by the time he was in his 80s, you know... We're traveling to the Louvre and they're performing his pieces there. And there's the Museum of Modern Art and the Pompidou Center. I mean, at the very end of his life, he was getting just the absolute highest accolades in his work. And that has been so influential for me as a person, personally, but also professionally. The idea that the single thing that you're the most curious about is deeply important to the world because no one else has that curiosity. There's not another person who has that curiosity um, that's going to be able to follow it and express it and sort of live in it. Like that's absolutely yours. And to the extent that you can in whatever profession that you have, um, following that curiosity or that passion, like that's, that's the gift that you give the world. Not some sort of service that you do because you feel like you have to or some sort of, um, amount of money that you make, or even um, whether or not people recognize the thing that you're doing at all. If you're driven by this particular curiosity like he was, success may come to you later in life, but you've also lived your life according to this like very particular and deep value. So yeah, he played a huge role in my life <laughs> in that sense. Um, yeah, and it was just a very intense hunting season for that reason. Ah. Uh. That's wild, man. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think where to go from there. Instead of trying to force something, I'll just ask the first question that came to my mind. So are you hunting? You're talking about a buck. Are you hunting in Oregon? Yeah, I'm hunting in Oregon. Like on It's a, a black tail? What is this, a mule deer? Yeah, it's just it's just a white tail. We're just hanging out on a friend's. Um, I didn't realize there was white tails in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so eastern Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I actually had been... This is... This is something I've been reflecting on and trying to write about, and I haven't really spoken to anyone about it, so I really welcome the opportunity to just talk with you about it, kind of see if you've had any similar experiences. But yeah, I was in between you know, going home to care for him in hospice, and then I came back to kind of finish off my hunting season with my hunting partner, Alicia. Um, and Alicia and I have been hunting together. This is our fourth or fifth year. We started bird hunting. Um, she and I met at a rabbit butchering class back Right when my partner Nick and I started dating, I took Nick to this rabbit butchering class and I met this woman there, not in a romantic sense, but I was like, she and I are going to do something together. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I came back 
Um, so I was kind of that whole season was in between going home to Connecticut to be with my dad and then coming back out to Oregon to hunt and both things. And he was, um, you know, he had been the riflery instructor at his boys camp in the 19, he started going in the 1930s. He was an instructor in the 1940s and 50s, if you can imagine what that was like. Um, a guy who ends up being an experimental composer with like a pretty strong background in um, competitive shooting. Um, and we shared that, like I did the same thing at camp. Riflery was my sport when I was in high school. I mean, that's a very Connecticut thing really? to say. Yeah, I hate, I hate to say it. You know what? The high school that I went to, <laughs> I went to an all boys Catholic high school, like an yeah. old one in St. Louis. Yeah. And in the, the bottom of it, there was a, there was two things. One, there was the largest pool hall, uh, east, no, west of the Mississippi was in the basement there. And then also there was an indoor riflery range inside. And it was, we had like one of the best competitive uh, high school shooting teams in the country for years and years. You know, I always drew like a real parallel between the type of focused listening that my father's music requires and I mean, hunting, but really specifically the the sport of competitive shooting. That mm. there's this like very um, centered, quiet, aware place that you have to be in mentally to be successful in that sport. Um, and that's really the same for listening to my father's music and being able to be like, I, my body is just going to be so still and I'm going to rely on my senses like very deeply to experience the world around me but I don't need to do it in a wildly like active or showy type of way I mean I would say you know I I certainly while he was in hospice and while I was out hunting just the capacity um to sit and listen mm. and not move and watch and be um, I don't, I don't want to say like entertained by the experience, but to be like fully engaged in that experience of just maybe something is going to happen. Maybe nothing is going to happen. Maybe the purpose of this entire trip was to put yourself on a hillside and ask yourself to sit and watch and be present. And that's actually the entire reason that you're out hunting because <laughs> of course like in a modern situation and especially like here I am in Portland Oregon like it is not necessary for my survival for me to be engaged in you know in hunting like it's that's not you know my, it, my it's not my family's not going to eat or not eat based on whether or not I hunt so there has to be a different type of motivation around that right and I think it's that sort of deeply meditative present um capacity to sort of be in awe of what exists in front of you and that 100% comes from my dad I mean there was a there was a time where he had me drive me up to his boys camp which doesn't exist anymore it's now like there are a couple of houses up there this is in um this is in northern New Hampshire and he was probably 85 at the time so you know sort of getting towards the end of his capacity and what he wanted me to do was to take his folding chair and sit him in the woods and leave him there for two hours just so he could listen to the same sounds that he had listened to from the same trees as from when he was a kid, right? Like those two things are, they're inextricably linked in that way of like, I would like to be the type of hunter who is like quote unquote successful because of my intention and my presence, not because I just was like 
pounding and grinding and running and like work forcing it and fighting around it um yeah and though my path is so different from my dad's obviously right um it's kind of the same it's on the same level of what it means to experience the world and sort of the way that i grew up Mm. man i was thinking about all sorts of stuff i was you know when my dad died it was a weird deal and because of covid and everything he was basically like in a coma for three weeks and i was i was the only one who was they weren't letting people into hospitals and stuff but he lost his faculty so quick that i had to make all the decisions so like basically like for three weeks i just spent like 16 hours a day or so uh in the hospital room with him right yeah and it's just like yeah listening right and like just like trying to discern like trying to get him back right Mm mm-hmm uh yeah and i you know i don't know that i had really connected that with uh the intention of being out in the woods and and uh i guess i'm struck by how it's i mean obviously you're looking at all these uh you're talking about life and death and all this heady stuff but it's these are all very just like innately human experiences, right? Like participating in these cycles is just innately human. Uh, and yeah, that's, I mean, when I started asking you about your dad, I didn't even think about that, but the, I mean, really, he sounds like, like quite a man, like uh, really lucky to have a, to have an influence like that in your life because think, just think about, what a disadvantage so many people are at because they cannot still themselves. Yeah. They cannot listen. I find myself doing that when I'm really in these anxious periods of my life where I'm uncomfortable with quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly playing a podcast or, or something. I can't just wash dishes and listen to the <laughs> clink of the dishes, you know? Uh, or hell, I looked at a, I saw a clip on YouTube the other day. It was just from Goodwill Hunting, and it's like that clip where uh, he schools that that Barney or whatever in the in the bar. And I saw a comment, and someone said, "Look, not a phone in sight." And just to think that that used to be even in a bar, yeah, there used to be an immersion in a human experience uh, or just a lived experience. Uh, that you know we've we've perhaps I don't know we've lost it, but we're we're definitely not engaging it in the same way. You know, I was listening to um, sort of in the process of dad dying. I was listening to a, a podcast. I think with I think it was with Elizabeth Gilbert, and her um, her romantic partner had died, and she'd been present at the death. And someone ha- asked her, like, "What do you wish you had done?" She said, "I wish I hadn't arrived with a clipboard." of like the things that I had to accomplish in that process, right? Like that there's not this list of things that we need to go through in order to exist in that moment and be present, right? And that was that was so helpful for me sort of approaching dad's death, but also 
I mean, approaching my time like in the woods and hunting, the idea that like there's a specific order of operations that you're absolutely going to accomplish or that you're going to be able to, I mean, you control what you control, obviously, right? Like you control your readiness, your preparedness, like all the stuff you've done in terms of scouting. But like in the actual moment, like the only thing you have is to be there. That's all, that's all you have. And you, and for most people, like certainly for me, like I've, I've carved out this period of time away from my partner, kids, dog, family, job, everything, right? Like the very precious time to just be without the phone and um, in many ways without any agenda besides, you know, like waking up, drinking the coffee really early, like getting out. We tend to sit a lot more, I think, than, than most people. Alicia and I have hunted with a couple of other people during the time that we've hunted together. And like, we really like our personal strategy, just like planning a lot in advance, getting to one specific place and then like really sitting, really sitting for a long time. Um, and that's just like, that's the experience that, that we like to have. Like, do I have that in my day-to-day life all the time? Do I have this like deep Zen quietness about myself? I don't, but you know, it's also very similar in terms of, I mean, believe it or not, in terms of photojournalism, like there's a very, Oh dude, I was thinking, I remember how you described how you take pictures last year to me. That's yeah. exactly what I well, thought. Well, I remember of. us having that conversation cause I was actually up in Winthrop, Washington, um, staying on a friend's ranch and there were just like, I don't know, eight turkeys just like hanging out in the field in front of me while you and I were talking on the phone. And this is, I think, before you had really, oh, like, yeah, in earnest sent, come out. To, yeah, you <laughs> sent me a picture of them, yeah. I was like, this conversation was meant to happen if there were, like, all these turkeys here. But, yeah, with photojournalism, it's the same thing. It's like um, you set yourself up to be in this particular event or, like, moment in someone's life or, like, part of their story. And, like, the truly the only way that you can do your job really well is to have, like, the technique is is second nature. So you're not even, like... You're, you're like you're, the technique is not the thing that you're worried about in that moment. It's like being able to be so fully present because in photojournalism, unlike other types of journalism, like you can't really revise it. It's like you either did the thing or you didn't do it at all. So you either like have the capacity to show up with complete focus and like complete mastery or, or you don't, and you can't go back and do it again. Right. We're, we're like, we're not allowed to accept in the situation where we're making portraits which is not my favorite thing to do but we're really not allowed to be like oh can you go back and do that thing again Mm -hmm. oh can you go back up to the top of the hill and do that thing um i remember a couple of years ago i did a story about women ranchers for um the sunday business section for the new york times and the very first series of pictures that i made for that story which is just one of my favorites of all time i was with a friend who's a rancher caitlin tossig and she was just like loading some cattle um up into the trailer and like like this happens to many ranchers you know one of the one of the cows kicked the gate back and it just split her head open you know and she had this huge gash and like blood was dripping down out of it into her eyes and there are these like conflicting feelings that you have in that moment like as a as a person like as a private person you're like oh my god I want to put down the camera and be like are you okay or I shouldn't be seeing this or can I help you or what? And then as a photojournalist, it really, yeah, I've seen this picture and yeah, you're like, is, I got to get this shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you have to have the presence of mind in that moment to be like, no, I'm like, I have the capacity to control my emotions in so far as like, I'm going to be able to do my job. And like, so lucky that I did. I, I love that picture. She loves that picture. She's fine. Like she went and got stitches a little bit later. 
Um, she's still ranching, you know, yeah, um, Kremlin, like Colorado. She's certified yeah. badass. In yeah. It. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she looks great. In fact, our youngest, Odin, um, who you've met, is just like the sweetest. Um, but like definitely a he's a, he's a little boy, you know. Mm-hmm. And when he was, I think he was probably three when I took that picture and he saw that picture and like ever since then, just madly in love with her. Just like that. He's like, that's it. Like, that's like, if there's a woman out there like that, like she's the one. So we go and he, like we go to Colorado and he, he picks bouquets for her and brings them. Or like, I remember we were out at a restaurant like a year later after he had seen that picture and met her in person. And he's like, I mean, he's little, he's four, right? He's like, I'll order the big rancher breakfast. You know, like he's trying to be he's trying to be that guy like just really really lovely um but you know because in that picture for him I think it's like oh like you can get hurt really bad and still and still smile you know you can still keep working you can still keep doing it not that that's the answer all the time I'm not saying like you know buck up and don't cry about it but in that situation it's like she's out there she's out there basically just with her mom her her sister works on a neighboring ranch so she's there to help a lot but it's like basically just the two of them running this whole ranch. That's what she's been doing her whole life. Like incredible. Just. It's also interesting too, cause you're talking about Odin and like him seeing that when he's real little and it, it's also kind of, you know, so you're forming, I said it now, so like this core memory, like these, yeah. these things that happen to you. And he's also like ascribing those things or those traits to femininity. You know, that's so interesting that you say that the first time I came home from elk season, probably I had just like, instead of bringing our travel trailer, it just was going to be like a little crazy. I just like set up a bed in the back of the Jeep. Mm -hmm. Um, And man, like I came in, not surprisingly unsuccessful, you know, on my first elk season in Oregon um, for everyone listening. But um, I like pulled in and Odin was immediately like, can we just hang out in the back of the Jeep? Like, and then can we just like pretend that we're hunting? And so we just like both got in the back of the Jeep. Like I broke out some snacks, you know, like we're just hanging out. And so like his, ex- oh, so many things about Odin and hunting. Um, you know, I have been saving all of the hearts for him. So every time I come home, I, I cook a heart for him and he, he's like the one in the family who wants to eat it the most. How do like, you cook him? Oh, just with like butter and salt and pepper. Okay. Just fast, right? Just like, <laughs> you know, just like almost like cut up. Here, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like cut up in little, little like, little like nuggets basically, but nothing but just like butter, salt and pepper and just like a really, a really fast pan sear. And, um, oh, he loves it. It's like, you'd probably ask him like, what's your favorite meat? And he'd be like, dear heart, you know? <laughs> and that's so rad. Um, you know, if we have like, you know, if we have like a deer hanging up in the garage and he's got a friend over or if I've got like, you know, a head in the freezer because I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. He's like, oh, come take a look at it. Like, this is so cool. And I love, you know, I really love being the person in his life that shares that with him. You know, I'm like, I'm a stepmom, So we have two, two kids. My partner is like a very, I mean, you know, Nick, like yeah. extraordinarily capable like yeah, kind of masculine, masculine yeah. yeah, but, but also like masculine in all the really beautiful ways, you know, not in all of the like hard and rough ways, but he really is like, he's really, uh, he's really modeling a, the most positive version of masculinity. Yeah, he's, he's a balanced dude. Yeah. yeah, he really, he really is. But then it's cool to me also to have the kids see that like, 
you know, either I'm going out to work because I'm, you know, going to, I'm going on a long trip because I'm photographing something or like I'm going out hunting and I'm coming back and we're having this, we're having this discussion, you know, about, and then we're eating the meat that, that I, that I did. I mean, it was funny, Alicia and I were unloading. We decided to, um, to, to butcher my buck this year in my kitchen. So we brought it back from Eastern Oregon. We were like, okay, this it's time for us to like not take it to the processor and really like really learn and really do mm-hmm. this ourselves, which was awesome. Um, and as we were like taking it out of the trailer to hang it in the garage overnight, our new neighbors came over and they're like, have you, were you, were you guys out hiking? And we're like, Oh no, like we were actually out hunting and Nick was coming out. He was wearing his apron he was like putting the trash in the trash and he's like, I had nothing to do with it. I was just here doing the laundry and taking care of the kids. And like he was, and that's awesome. Like, it's just so, um, it's so, it's so beautiful to be with a partner for whom like, that's just like not even a, it's not even a thing. And he and I have hunted together, um, a couple of times and that's fine, you know, and it's, you know, I'm sure we'll do it again. Um, but I think like he certainly likes going hunting with some of his veteran friends. Like I think that that's an important experience for them to have. And I like going hunting with my hunting partner, Alicia. And there's like absolute space for that in our family, which I think is can only be good for the kids. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's something I hope to model, uh, in my family, uh, yeah, I mean, having strong, having like really strong, assertive mothers, I think is super important for for kids. Like my kids have it. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, she's like she's really into she likes squirrel hunting and. Uh, oh man, really? Which is yeah, just is, is which is a fantastic way to spend your time because it's you can kind of make it whatever you want it to be. But recently, she's. And she's been talking about this for years, but so she finally just like took the impetus and her and her sister went and did a fly fishing, uh, like weekend kind of course thing. And, uh, I stayed at home, you know, know, with the girls and I mean, it'll be, she'll have it. She should be getting it today, man. But so she bought herself a fly rod and stuff. And then she's also like an artist, right? And specifically when she did, uh, so she's really moved into photography in the last few years, but she's uh, before that she was doing uh, like fiber art, so like taking hair and turning it into yarn and then doing portraiture with it or whatever, yeah. like real deep stuff. So anyway, this whole idea of like tying flies like really oh, just makes yeah. sense to her. So I ordered her a uh, for Mother's Day. I got her like a fly tying setup so she can have that in her little oh studio. Oh my god, what an incredible Mother's uh, Day gift! That's not little so, studio. So good. I didn't mean that. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, and you know what, dude? It's I I love the idea that she'll have this outside pursuit that doesn't involve me. Yeah. You know, cuz I'm not particularly interested in fly fishing. Yeah. The kind of fishing that I do is you know, comparatively like way more low brow. It's it's yeah. you know, it's almost like tra- I'm basically trapping for fish, right? And yeah. I'm in these bayous. I'm not in these beautiful picturesque streams i'm in these like yeah. really weird uh but these places that are very resonant for me right yeah. uh but yeah i love the idea that she can uh her and her sister can go up to the little red or you know arkansas has got some really beautiful uh trout stream situations and or just like go down uh there's a park down the street from our house you know you can fly fish for brim or crappie or yeah. you know you can top water stuff uh 
yeah, and you could just, I mean, practice casting to, to the end of your life, you know, like there's no, I mean, my dad was a, was a beautiful fly fisherman, like just really elegant, really elegant. And he taught me how to fish. And then by the time Nick and Magnus and Odin came into my life, I was kind of less interested in fishing, honestly, like mm-hmm. less interested in fly fishing in Colorado. Um, and so dad just kind of like took them on and then they would go fishing together whenever we went on vacation kind of amazing like very cool <laughs> that's that's <laughs> to have this man in his late 80s and like this kid who's fought like because odin's the youngest you mm-hmm. know anywhere with the period of time that they fished odin was probably anywhere between like four and eight right um it was just awesome it was just awesome that they got to they got to share that you know while he was alive and that he was doing it like he four months before he died I took him in the Jeep, like off-roading, drove like through a river to find a spot where we could get out and set up his walker so he could sit and he could cast for like an hour and a half. That's awesome. Oh my God. I mean, zero regrets about the way that that like last bit of his life um, was. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It was just amazing. But also like I did, I do love that, um, I do love that like Nick and the kids have fishing together which is something that i'm just i mean i do love deep sea fishing for sure um but that they have that and then like i have this this other time where i'm headed out and sort of disappearing and having this like very difficult at least for elk season very difficult physical experience um just with alicia are you are you still your rifle hunting oh yeah oh for sure yeah and it's like all western hunting I mean, I guess, yeah, well, no, you can hunt elk other places. They got elk in Arkansas. Really? Yeah. Well, we've, we let's see, we've done three seasons now in Oregon. Um, we're crossing our fingers for Colorado at some point soon because I have a little place kind of out in the middle of nowhere that's pretty close to some BLM land that's kind of hard to get to, mm-hmm. um, except that we have access to it. So I think, you know, it's also like two two women learning how to big game hunt by themselves. Like that was I mean, it was thrilling, honestly, to be like, okay, like, where do we start? Like, how, how do we deal with this lottery system in Oregon? Like, where are we going to go? Like, how are we going to camp? Um, what rifles are we going to buy? Like, where are we going to, you know, where are we going to practice? Like, who are we going to talk to? We really started from scratch, just the two of us, because neither of us come from hunting families. Um, and it's actually like shockingly difficult to learn as an adult this this type of thing right All, so much of it right especially this western stuff this western stuff is way more arduous like with the tag systems and all the that. tag system is super complicated and then you're just like you know where are people going to be on opening day or is every like is it just you know unless you live in a place and really know that landscape it's just so hard to predict as a new person coming in like where you're going to find anything but that was so exciting as an adult to be like to put yourself in the mindset of like a very fundamental student and be like, I literally just don't know anything about this, but I absolutely have the capacity to learn this, you know? Um, yeah, that, that part of it has just been incredible. But I think that these first, you know, what we're now in year five. And I think it's just, it's just like excellent that we haven't shot an elk. Can you imagine? Can you imagine shooting an elk in your first season and being like, what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, like, yeah. how am I going to, how am I going to break this down? How am I going to pack it out? Like, how am I going to do any of this? Like, I, I, I'm so, 
I'm so excited for whenever that happens for us because we've just been putting in so much time and so much mileage and learning so much every single year. Um, and there have been there have been a couple of people, I mean, specifically like male hunters who've like given us some shit over the years um, just because they don't, you know, it's it's not as common to see two women in the backcountry like rolling up to hunt. And I think that some people are like, well, this is our spot. We've been here forever. And it's like, nah, it's public land though. You know, like this is everyone's spot. Um, but correspondingly, there have also been like a few guys who've just been such generous mentors, like so deeply generous with their knowledge and time. Um, we've just been incredibly lucky in that sense too, just to have, especially, especially in terms of like field dressing and, and breaking down carcasses and stuff like that. Like you really don't know how to, you can watch a million YouTube videos and you really don't know how to do it or what it's going to feel like, um, or how you're going to fuck it up until you actually do it. So we've had a lot of help in that, in that regard, which has been just kind of like renews your, your faith in humanity when people reach out and are like, Oh, it's awesome that you're new to this. Like we're so, we're so happy to help. Yeah, which is also like that's the, I mean, this is a game, not a game. This is a pursuit uh, that requires mentorship on many different levels for everybody, right? Because like you're like you're saying, this romanticism that's around uh, hunting right now, and this you know, all these people pretending that when the shit hits the fan, they're not going to die quickly. Uh, you can do all of that. You can have all the romanticism around uh, hunting, which I, I believe in and I subscribe to. You've also got to learn how to cut something's asshole out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> I mean, that's, and I'm saying that intentionally because that's no, really real. what it is. Yeah. And, you know, like even down to the minutia of, like I've got a whole system, kill a deer. I like kind of, sl- I like kind of milk the turds out until I get enough clean spot and I put a zip tie on it and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And like, it's just, a, it's a messy operation. I killed an elk in Utah and it was a calf elk, like as small as it could get still the biggest thing I'd ever killed. And you know what I'm, ha- I'm having to use my entire body to like keep it splayed open and take it apart and yeah. I'm flipping it apart. And I mean to tell you, because the 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 uh, the bullet went into its the like the finishing blow went into its sternum, kind of exploded, right? So its guts were all messy. Man, I smelled awful. Smelled absolutely awful, and the smell s- stayed with me for like all the way back to Arkansas. I was gonna I say, did your wife love that when you came home? Oh, she's used to. It. She's. Yeah. I've been smelling. I mean, I was playing in bands and stuff when she met me. I've smelled bad for 16 years probably but uh (laughs) yeah like it was on my boots you know but it's just part of it but what was weird is i'd smell it and it would take me back yeah eventually i hosed off my boots but uh that's funny i still feel like i have a little bit of blood on my boots from from last season just like it'll wash off it's been raining like you know a ton in portland and i i wear those boots to hike in the woods sometimes but um the other thing is i think i also feel like this idea of you know you know, around hunting right now, it's like, if I, as a single person, like learn to do the single thing, like I will save myself and my single family. It's like, no, when, like when this stuff goes down, the ability to build community is actually going to be the difference between you living or dying. Like no one, no one is going to live forever knowing how to kill like one animal in the woods by themselves. Like that's just not, 
that's not how it works. It's, it's an awesome tool to have, and it's a really great skill to have. It's been a fascinating skill to learn. Like I just, we have, and Alicia and I have so much more ahead of us in terms of where we want to hunt and what we want to learn and how much better we want to get. But, um, it, it's not so we can just be like, have this deeply individual experience or this like, you know, deeply individualized skill that's not going to ever benefit anyone else. I, I kind of feel like sometimes people who are thinking of being entirely self-sufficient in this way or maybe hitting the mark of what it actually takes to stay alive as a human, which is like community building. Yeah. On some level, yeah. you know, and, and I was telling you, we were talking earlier about like traveling and I love the bebopping around the country I've gotten to do in the last year or two facilitated by hunting. One of the coolest things has been to see different people's communities. Yeah. Right. And like how that might be like a, a group of friends that will drop everything to help you pack an elk out. Yeah. Right. Uh, or you go someplace and it's very like family oriented, right? Like you've got multiple generations of a family that live all in a very similar, yeah. similar place. Uh, or just like uh, when I was in California, it was it was this uh, this black heritage hunt, right? And so there were like uh, these duck hunting mentors, and then all these people that, uh, or it's like five people that hadn't killed ducks before, right? But there was this community in that hunting camp, even though there's there's a, a variance of skill levels, and it was uh, just some cultural touchstones that kind of helped build that community. So like one thing was uh there was like we're in the kitchen and like there's just a bottle of cocoa butter, right? Just <laughs> I mean I know everyone uses cocoa butter, but like that's you know, black people use a lot of cocoa butter. Or uh uh Rue and Chaya were uh these two black women were in there cooking one night and they both had like bonnets on. Yeah. Right? And it's just it just made me think of like my sisters and my cousins you know and like it was just a familiar touchstone which allowed these people to drop their guard enough to be vulnerable enough to go out there and uh i think most of them got their first bird that that trip yeah that's uh, awesome super cool uh i'd actually like to segue a little bit more into to photojournalism yeah. so describe that work uh, it, as broadly or as specifically as you want to, like, where does it take you? Where are you publishing stuff? I know you mentioned the New York times, but, uh, sure. Yeah. I'm, I was a newspaper photographer for many years. I worked in, um, all over the place. Um, I was in a small paper in Indiana, which I loved, um, called the Jasper Herald, which is probably like one of the last had was at the time, one of the last black and white family owned photo forward newspapers in the world you know they would enter these photo competitions and like beat out time magazine and the washington post and whatever because they just really did such a beautiful job of um hiring photographers and giving them a lot of space so that's where i started after um after graduate school and then i was at the dallas morning news for a little bit and then i ended up in virginia um and then towards the end of my time in virginia i i realized i just i mean a i didn't um I mean, quite frankly, like I just didn't want to keep dating sailors for the rest of my life. Like I felt like I needed a little bit of something different um, in my mid-30s. And so I moved out to Portland to start freelancing. So 
most of my work focuses on the agricultural West. Um, and so, you know, sort of anything that's happening in ranching specifically is a, is a very deep interest of mine. Um, but so I'll get, you know, the, the way that it works is, you know, a publication will give you a call and be like, all right, we're working on this thing. Can you go do this for, can you do it tomorrow? Can you go for a week? Can you do this thing? Can you do that thing? Um, but recently I've been pitching a lot more of my own stories, which I find the most, um, the most gratifying, which is how you and I, um, connected. So the women rancher story was a story that I shot on my own for, I don't know, maybe six months, um, not six months, you know, working every single day, but, you know, going up to Washington state to cowgirl camp and photographing it. And, you know, when I was out in Colorado over the summer, as I go every summer, um, photographing women ranchers there, photographing in 4-H fairs, and then bringing that, a portion of that finished work to the New York Times and pitching it for Sunday business, um, and then getting them to fund the final parts of it. Like, I was like, there, like, absolutely has to be a woman of color in the story. Like, it's going to actually be extremely difficult to find, um, you know, in Oregon, a woman of color who's, like, the head of a livestock ranch, for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I'm going to need to get some money and be able to travel within the United States to accomplish that. Cause like, I'm not leaving that out of, out of the story. Um, did you find that person? Oh yeah. Kelsey Duchesneau who lives in, um, South Dakota on the, um, Lakota reservation there. And she's a fourth generation rancher and also just like an incredibly like badass leader. I mean, honestly, like if she ran for president tomorrow, I think I'd be like, vote Kelsey all the way. <laughs> She's just totally wild. She's probably in her late 20s, maybe in her early 30s. Um, but it was what a what a trip that was because I went out there. God, it was probably in, in when was it? It was at, it was at a time of the year where it was both very cold and very muddy, like so much so that, you know, you, you know, you, you, you enter into the reservation and then on your way to her ranch, you know, you're making this right onto an unnamed road and then you've got like 10 miles to go before you get to where she's ranching with her family. Um, um, and her dad, Zach, who is also just a really um, influential leader in that community. So much so that on our way out, she's like, oh, this is so lovely. She's like, Amanda, I totally like, I totally know you're a good driver and I totally trust you. But like, if, if you wouldn't mind, like you can ride with this other person and I'm going to drive your rental car out. Cause otherwise I don't think you're going to make it. And she was completely right. Cause they call that, um, that like slick mud on that, in that particular part of South Dakota, they call it gumbo. And it is mm -hmm. really like, if you stop for a second, it, you're, it, you're done. You're like all the way down. You're not getting out that day. You know, it's like, you have to go at such a rate and with such confidence and you have to do that for 10 miles and like also not like fly off and go down a ditch. And I was just so thankful to her for doing that. Like I have a feeling if she had been like, I don't know, like a stereotypical cowboy guy to be like, oh, like I'm going to, I'm going to need to drive your car out. I would like maybe like wrestle at that a little bit. Like I consider myself to be a pretty good driver, but yeah, she drove me out and God, I'm so happy she did that. Oh my God. What a nightmare that would have been. Um, but I got to, you know, I got to live on her ranch for a week and live in her house and kind of you know see the land that she grew up on you know where her grandmother had been the ways that you know obviously the U.S. government both in the United States generally but specifically um, even in that area had moved people 
around in the land that was even then considered to be, you know, quote unquote theirs, that there had still been so much movement up until um, recently that was kind of out of their control. So her focus was just on food sovereignty for her people. Um, and ranching is a huge part of that, right? Especially in those places where... What tribe is it? Lakota. Okay. Yeah. Um, just food sovereignty, just like her, one of her um, beautiful visions was just to be able to um, set up in gas stations, chest freezers mm-hmm. for ground protein at like four ninety nine a pound or less, you know, in a place where you're completely dependent on, not completely dependent, but largely just because of, you know, if you think about how, how short the growing season is there and how it's not like a deeply agricultural space, you know, you're dependent on people bringing food to supermarkets so you can buy it, right? When in fact, like there are all of these resources and, you know, from Kelsey's perspective, and obviously she would say this a lot better than I would, but um, this is also sort of part of the ethos of regenerative agriculture, but, you know, keeping the resource in the community and on the land, literally, right? Like letting the rain fall on the land, letting grass grow, letting your animal eat it, harvesting your animal, you know, and then having your people eat it. And that's the cycle. And it stays all in that same place. It doesn't come from, you know, New Zealand and it doesn't come from, some completely other part of the United States that resource, both in terms of money, but like actually in terms of, you know, the specific components of that animal and that harvest staying in that community is just a huge part of why she does what she does. And that was, you know, having my mind oriented in that way has just been extremely helpful. Also like trying to keep resources, um, within the places that they're produced, I think is extremely important. Yeah, well, you know, it's like it's like that idea of terroir, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, it's also a it, you know, like one of the ways to destabilize a place is to make them dependent on outside resources, yeah. right? So reclaiming that is, you know, I think you can make a real argument that you know, possibly a revolutionary act. It's a it's an act of uh, self-assuredness, you know what I mean? And, and protection, and but then also being able to instill those levels of of deep-seated meaning into it as well. You know, I mean, that's, that's exactly... And see, what's cool about that is, you know, you're talking about that as far as like agriculture in South Dakota, ranching. You could also talk about that like in Appalachia. Right. And someone who lives in a small physical circle. Right. But they're hunting there. They're getting sang or whatever to like, you know, wild medicines. Uh, It's it's these ideas of, you know, hyper locality. It's not just uh, it's not just these like catchphrases of modernity. Right. There's something deeply identifiable like kind of across the board for people there it's it's a that stuff is sustaining in a different sort of way yeah i mean in many ways it's like the least modern thing that you can say Mm, right to say like we live in an economy that's not extractive in this particular way or if to the extent that like we're extracting a material out of the land like we're returning it also in a different way right yeah that's like the old that's like the old that's how that's how we you know 
it's just that's how that's how we that's how we lived yeah Yeah. i mean like that's how we lived i mean not to get too like you know west coast woo-woo on anyone but like that's how we've lived in you know how we were able to live in harmony with the resources we were given for so long it's the stuff that's extractive that takes resources away from communities and leaves them with like not a lot right yeah maybe some money but like likely that money is not going to you you know (laughs) and goes somewhere else like that um I'm not like I'm not anti-modern and I'm not like oh we need to go back to a time where we're hunters or gatherers but um you know that that natural cycle around you know the water cycle the water table the um nutrients like all of that it's it's so beautifully designed that the more we mess with it I think the the harder it gets yeah I mean there's a practicality to it too right like it doesn't have to be as you say west coast woo-woo uh, no, I mean, it's even like, you know, with the war in Ukraine right now, a, a, a very nerdy thing that I've been following and been interested in is just how how that war is affecting um, fertilizer production. Yeah, yeah. Like Driving the price up astronomically. Yeah, and lowering yields internationally just because there's just not going to be enough, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, potash that's mined in Belarus, but, you know. To, to think of, of something so um, fundamental as soil productivity to be tied to international markets is kind of mind blowing. And, you know, this is obviously we're like off the topic of no, no, photojournalism, no. but, you know, I, I, this is what I love about photojournalism though, is like, so you start going down that road and you like talk to Kelsey Ducheneau in South Dakota and you think like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. And then you end up, you know, I was with Beth Robinette who teaches cowgirl camp up in, Washington state and they also are practicing regenerative agriculture, which then leads me to my next project, which is there's this woman, Lonnie Malberg. This is also in the the Sunday business section of the times. She runs a herd of, of 3000 goats throughout the Western United States to mitigate, um, fire damage, fire damage, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and that's also like keeping, keeping the cycle, um, appropriately balanced by having animals on the land as they, as they were meant to and as everything evolved to have them be that particular input, right? Like it, it seems so small to think like that hooves need to touch this plant, you know, so that it is ground into the soil so that it, you know, helps regenerate the soil and doesn't just dry and oxidize and, you know, fuel fire. Right. But we've taken so many of those, we've taken so many animals off the land for so long in so many places that, you know, these efforts to try and really sort of bring them back to where they belong, although they may not be the same species, right, as like what had originally been there, but to bring those, those effects kind of back online, there's just like something like sitting on the, sitting on the hillside with Lonnie and her goats in like August of last year, um, just the, like the rightness of the sound of goats eating, (laughs) on a hillside like I don't even know how it's it's hard to it's hard to describe like what it just is everything about that sound is the right sound you're just like yeah this is how there's some some, whatever's happening here is the thing that should be happening here and it does it like frees up water to go in different places it cuts down on um it cuts down on you know fuel that like just really like helps these fires rage throughout um, all of the West. And that's something that we're dealing with in a big way. But, you know, it's like each of these, um, each of these topics are connected. And um, 
with I think within each assignment that I have, there are like a thousand different stories that could be that could be told or mm. that could, you know, could go in one direction or another. And it's just really a question of I mean, actually, you know, back to what we started this conversation out with, like nobody else cares about goats, right? On the side of a hill in Colorado for the New York Times business section besides me, right? Like, does, is there any, is there anyone else out there who's like, I got this goat story. Like, I think the businessmen need to read this goat story. Um, it's not like this, um, it's not this like sort of like sexy prototypical, like I'm going to war, like I'm going to make these photographs in this particular way, but like both, both things are necessary, right? Like both of those topics are important and people need to be working on all of those different topics and they need to be sort of curious and also just like honoring of what really drives them and is interesting to them. Like if it's not interesting to the New York times, um, they won't publish it, you know, like mm -hmm. if it's, if it's not something that helps drive their coverage <coughs> for people who are, who are reading that paper, like, yeah, they're not gonna, they're not gonna do it. But like, you know, someone at the times, Krista Chapman, my editor was like, yeah, the goat story sounds great. Let's do it. You know? What there's something you said a few minutes back. Uh, it seems like there's a real difference in, and I don't know if it's just your perspective or just photojournalism in general. But uh, when we had talked some some time ago, I'd related some of my discomfort uh, in like some of the pictures or footage or just any of that stuff. The, the documentation of me because uh, it just was kind of like anxiety producing, right? And the way I was describing it to you is like, you know, they're, they're taking my picture and you even kind of keyed in on that and you're like, uh, even the way you're describing it, they're taking something from you, right? It's, it's, it's extractive. Uh, and then you describe the way that you take pictures, which is where you said that a lot of times you'll get set up in a spot and then, you know, so very analogous to hunting, you wait for the action to come through. Yeah. Uh, you want to maybe like just extrapolate the difference in those approaches or, or why it's so necessary for what you're doing to, be you know, LA? this has been the hardest part um, for me about, you know, practicing photojournalism during COVID because my process really has always been um, about essentially like basically going into someone's house and being like, I'm going to be here for a long time. But like you're, by the end of it, you're not going to know that I'm here. Right. Because it's not, I mean, it would be disingenuous to say that a photograph that a photojournalist makes like isn't about them. Obviously, it's informed by their life experience and their aesthetics and all of these things. But I think really um, sort of the the task of the true photojournalist is to, I mean, as cheesy as the sounds, but like is to, is to bear witness. And from my experience, the way to do that is um, by not making myself the story and by not making sort of my actions change to the extent that that's possible, change what's happening in front of me, right? So I think that, um, I think there are some journalists, hopefully not that many, but I think there are some journalists who really like to sort of like come in and get what they need and, you know, look out the window and look sad and do this, this, stand on this thing, you know, hold this chicken in your arms or like whatever, whatever thing is happening. Um, my approach is just so different. Like, I just want to, um, I just want to put myself in a place where things are going to unfold as they unfold. And like, that's the most exciting thing is, um, 
not planning what you want something to be, but letting it unfold and letting it happen in front of you and sort of like honoring the, um, the imperfection of the moment also, but then also like honoring it by making that imperfect moment in some ways perfect because of your technique and your timing and your knowledge of light and your sense of composition. Um, there's just something, there's some moment when you've put yourself in that place and you've been patient and you've waited for all of the things to come together. And then they like all come together in this particular moment and you, you know, you depress the, the shutter and you have that photograph and it's like that moment would have happened if you hadn't been there at all. Right. The, the world goes on mm-hmm. around us all of the time and all of these perfect and imperfect things are happening all of the time. But you know, you had the presence of mind and the discipline, honestly, to like be quiet and to not be asserting yourself into what things are happening, but just, um, witnessing the thing that's the the thing that's happening and you know allowing people to other people to see it who wouldn't have been there otherwise yeah what an important skill set to have just in general you know not uh inserting yourself into everything and observing (laughs) we were just having this conversation down in my kitchen before we did this like that the world would be a lot better if there was a certain um my mind your business aspect of it which yeah. is i think in many ways also just like a live and let live attitude like like be, be be yourself and do your thing and live your life and like let that that all unfold to the extent that it's not like infringing upon fundamental things that are happening in my life like i celebrate you for doing that like i find that fascinating i'm interested i'm curious about how you're living this life that's completely different than a life that i would live or you're involved in a story that's totally different than a story um, the story that's happening in my life, right? Like, but it needs to unfold in the way that it unfolds. And, you know, I'm lucky if I have the opportunity just to witness it. How do people, how do people react when they see what, what you've documented? It depends on what it is and who it is for sure. Um, definitely with women ranchers, it was like, everyone loved it with the exception of some people online who were like, she's fixing that fence wrong or like, <laughs> Oh, those, Oh, those dudes are the worst. Or like, that's not the way to do the thing. It's like, you know, okay. They're but all over hunting I, social media. I, I care less about, it's funny. Like I care less about the, not, not like I don't care about the audience, but I do, really do care less about them. And I care more about sort of the people that I've entered into this, um, this compact of trust with, you know, because I, I the, the work that I like the most is the work that I get to work on for a long time. So it's not like, Oh, I have an hour with you. I'm going to do this thing that happens. And like, I'm happy to do it. And sometimes that's really, that's really good. And that just is the, the way that you make money in this industry. Also, you're just getting an assignment and going and making a portrait, getting an assignment, like going to white supremacist rally. Like, you know, you're doing these things and they're very contained. I, I care about all the people that I photograph, but especially people where I'm going to spend a really a long amount of time with, and they're going to open up and, really show me what their what their life is um that how they feel that their story is represented whether or not they agree with what i've seen or what i decide to publish like i want them to feel that i was completely transparent in the process right like that that i had no hidden agenda Mm -hmm. that i was trying to get at i'm 
trying to think off the top of my head if there's been like a deeply, if I've had like a deeply negative response to anything. And I'm sure I have, and I'm sure I've totally blocked it out. <laughs> Definitely when I worked at newspapers, I mean, you're just the, the sheer volume of photographs that you're making over the course of a week is astounding. I mean, you're just out there like all of the time from like the ribbon cutting to like, you know, I would spend, I, I got flown out to aircraft carriers. I was like on tall ships in the middle of the ocean with the Coast Guard. I mean, planes over like wildfire, like I everything, every possible thing. And then like, you know, girls volleyball at high school. You just, that's photojournalism at the newspaper level at the time that I was there. Just so dynamic and so, so interesting. I'm sure that there were many times that I made photographs that people hated and then upset them, but... But in your, like your long form work, has anyone been really upset? Um, I mean, if you're really being honest, it w- I think it would be hard for someone to really. Yeah, be upset. I, I mean, I'm trying. Like, certainly, I mean, I I work really hard to get it right. Honestly, I work really hard to get it right. I mean, sort of back to back to the women and ranchers project with and specifically with with Kelsey Ducheneau you know there was a um and this is the part that's always hard there was a writing component um which is oh that's so it's so hard to get that right and for anyone who's a writer out there who's listening like oh my gosh I applaud you for being able to to do that um but making sure that um all of the language around describing um, the Lakota relationship to land and ranching. Like I had to go back and forth with her dozens of times around it, right? Like you would use a word like, you know, owning land and she'd be like, no, we don't think of it that way. You can't use that word. And you're like, okay, like, and now, okay. So how do, how are we, how do we understand it? Like, is it a steward of land? Is it a protector of land? Is it a user? Like all of these things, um, Oh my gosh, I just, it was so important to me to get that right because I just felt that it was such a big platform for, I mean, pretty much everyone who's involved in that story that I just, you know, if it is, it's like your story is going into the New York Times and I want to have not, to the extent that is that it's possible to have not gotten anything wrong and to really have like told the story in a fair and appropriate way. Um... I think probably because of the nature of the stories that I choose, there isn't anything that is like deeply controversial maybe about, um, about the images that I'm, that I'm showing. Um, and I've had some great editors make some really beautiful choices for me in editing, especially situations that are, um, that are really difficult. I worked on a story for the times about, um, mental health and policing in Portland, which is a, which is a deeply important topic in our community, um, but also it's very hard to photograph because you there's so many questions of consent around people who are experiencing um, mental health issues. You know, on the one hand, it's on the street, it's public, it's completely legal to make photographs of anyone who's who's you know who's standing on the street. It's just the law, right? But in the heart of it, you know, if someone is in the middle of a deep crisis and they're you know and the, and the police are engaged with them in some way, like, um, 
are are they able to consent in that moment? Like, what does consent look like? And what is, um, like, truly honoring their individuality as you do every other person that you photograph? Like, you can do it one way. You should do it another way. And so I've been really lucky, lucky to work with editors who, when we're um, facing issues like that, um, you know, we did a big story about meth in Portland, and I ended up spending a couple of days with a woman in her tent, you know, shooting up, passing out, trying to, you know, all of these things, photographing her. She gave me total consent. Um, and my editor just making a series of really beautiful choices that like never shared the woman's identity at all. Right. Cause 10 years from now, she's a completely different person, mm-hmm. you know, what she doesn't need is like her name and her face in the New York times about a story, but in this, in that particular case. Right. But what is just as informative and telling is to see, you know, I mean, I hate to be graphic, but like the needle going into her arm or, you know, the fact that she's sleeping in the tent, but you don't truly know who she is specifically, right? Because the story is not about her specifically. It's about a general trend and a series of things that are happening. Like in that particular case, um, you know, and then honestly, like in in those situations, I'm so, it's, I'm sad to say, but in Portland, like we, homelessness is a story that we're just telling all of the time. And in many ways we're telling it because it's a broken record. And I think the national media is interested in hearing it. And in many other ways we're telling it because it's like, a, it's probably the central crisis that's facing our city. Right. Um, in those situations, I'm, I'm also like always going back and finding people and talking to them afterwards and giving them copies of the articles and trying to find them and checking in with them and calling them and like all of that stuff. Um, like the best that I can do is just, um, yeah, is just be like really thoughtful and, and do my job with the most integrity that I possibly can. And it's definitely not perfect. Yeah. That's probably everybody though. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) it just like the weight of it is so huge, right? Like in my mind, like I'm actually like, I'm not really on social media. Like I'm a very private person. I don't know that I would want everyone to know all of the ins and outs of how I live my life. Right. Um, but then you're saying like, not only am I doing that, but then this story or this picture of you is going like, it's going in the Washington post. It's going on ESPN. It's like, you know, going in the New York times. Like I feel like the, the weight of that in the current media, um, climate is just it's so heavy. Right. Cause that's going to be there forever and your name's going to be on it. Like you have to be a certain type of person to be like, yes, you can make my picture. Like I want, I, I invite the scrutiny or I invite this attention or whatever it is. So, so obviously like that is on the person who's being photographed. They have complete agency in that sense. Um, but you also want to like be a little bit protective of people as well. Like, do you really like really what you want? Like you really want this, this picture of you in this moment and you might, you probably know better than a, a lot of folks, like what the ramifications of that can be, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, either in a positive way or a negative way or just in a way, you know? Yeah. I think it, I mean, like for me, it would have to be if someone came, like if someone wanted to talk to me, <laughs> like you, for example, today, um, when you asked me if I wanted to talk with you, I was like, you know, I really have on my heart and soul right now, this idea of like, um, my dad and listening and presence and like this, this moment, 
you know, that I've been in in this past year. And I was like, well, this is a, this is a story. This is a conversation that I would love to have. Also, because you and I have had so many interesting conversations, but like, I wouldn't do that with just anyone. And I don't think I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do it if someone came up to me on the street and was like, how sure. do you, how do you feel about this thing? I'd be like, it's none of your business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I'm a journalist saying that, like, does that seem so hypocritical? I don't know. I probably have to have to think on that and work on that a little bit more, but. Well, I mean, it just sounds like. I mean, honestly, it sounds like you're being a person to me. Like, that's kind of what we all are, right? We're all this mix of... It's so hard, though, to be a person, isn't it? Especially an adult. Ugh. The adult stuff is just very... It's very deep. (laughs) You know, I go back and forth with it because I really do like the self-determination that you get from being an adult. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, like, the the flip side of that is the responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. but anyway, so normally, you know, I ask people like, how do folks get a hold of you? But you just said that you like to remain private. So, uh, I mean, I have Instagram for sure. I just haven't, you know, I haven't been on it over the past couple of months. I'm just in an introspective moment. I have a website. Yeah. Just so like, where yeah. could people see? Your oh work? yeah. Yeah. It's amandalucier.com. And, uh, where could, where could folks listen to your father's work? Oh my gosh. Everywhere. I think just Google search, uh, Alvin Lucier. Really cool thing happened on his 90th birthday, which is um, May the 14th of, of this past year. Um, they organized 90 people across the country to do versions of his um, piece, I'm Sitting in a Room. Um, so that's on the Issue Project Rooms website, I believe. Um, but yeah, I mean, Google search his name. He's all over it. Awesome. Well, Amanda Lucier. Thank you so much. I so appreciate the conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for letting me stop back by your house. No, anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're hearing this outro to the podcast, then that means I am still on the road i'm still on turkey tour 2022 it's been phenomenal so far and uh, i'm excited to see how it all winds up Uh, if you'd like to follow along please do so over at instagram the handle is just black duck revival and if you'd like more information about me and what i'm doing possibly book a hunt or a fishing trip just head on over to the website at blackduckrevival.com questions comments all that stuff you can send to me uh through the link at the website and if you guys are enjoying this podcast like i ask you pretty much every week please tell somebody uh share uh share it with your friends on social media any uh sort of promotion we can get helps out tremendously Uh, and i'm so pumped up and enthusiastic these last few weeks while i've been out on the west coast uh, i've been looking at the numbers and we are getting a significant uh, increase in listeners. So thank you so much for everything you guys have been doing. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.